Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Frances Sachs, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm joined by Elizabeth During, author of The Chastity Plot. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me. Sure. Um, so uh, I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about your background and um, how this book came into being. Ah, no, good question. I think that it's, you know, asking about the, the fate of a book is asking about a very, you know, tangled, tangled history. Uh, how does, how do you find your way to a book or how does a book find its way to you? Um, for me, it's probably, you know, connected with my own background. Um, I come from background in feminism, feminist theory, um, but also in theology. So I've had, you know, a, an education in theology, philosophy and uh, religion. Um, but this book is more looking at chastity from a variety of, of you know, cultural uh, associations. Uh, so certainly the the religious uh, plays, you know, as one might expect, uh, a very a very important role. But it's not primarily an intervention in the religious meanings of chastity. Yeah, mm. yeah. And the, uh, I, the the part that I suppose makes sense to to most people is is the oddity of trying to find a positive uh, reading of chastity. Because for many people within feminism, the cultural fuss about female virginity, you know, the whole uh, issue around purity has not seemed a very attractive option. Indeed, many feminists thought, you know, the way forward, the way towards, you know, freedom, recognition, public life was definitely away from this suppression of uh, female sexual life. Um, And that always had this connotation that, you know, innocence, virginity was sort of condescending toward women. It was certainly keeping uh, women within, you know, a much more, um, within a kind of enclosure, uh, you know, this idea that woman was intended to remain outside of, of the, the real active world of, of male action and, and participation. And that sexual restraint uh, was counted as female honor, you know, as opposed to you know, male military honor, uh, even male intellectual achievement, that this, uh, yeah, you know, recognition of a female value as connected to control of your sexuality was not exactly complimentary. Um, and that provoked me. I was, you know, curious as, as to the, you know, the other history of chastity, where chastity was aligned with power, with a, with a kind of spiritual power, but also, a, you know, a form of independence, a, a way of opting out of the more traditional plot uh, for women's lives, which had to do with marriage, 
domesticity, child rearing. Yeah. So that's um, that's probably the beginning of it. You know, the kind of the motivation. So, as someone who has worked in feminism, was chastity something that you also looked down upon as you as you went through your studies, or or was there a moment where it kind of came to be something more interesting to you? I think it's ambivalent. Uh, I, I can certainly see the role it, it played in female subordination, um, and the uh, you know this rather curious idea that you know the the woman's body is at its most powerful, its most magical, um, its most you know admirable um, when it's uh, you know untouchable, you know when when it doesn't act at all, when it's passive, uh, and that was provocative. You know that was certainly. Um, the, the the poisonous side of, of chastity. Um, but the other hand, there's this tradition, you know, which I know about from my background in theology, um, where chastity was a kind of uh, almost a, a, um, a form of athletic achievement, um, you know, a way of struggling against the body, uh, a, a kind of ambition. Um, and certainly the, you know, initial role of uh, chastity, of, of sexual renunciation, uh, among the early Christians in the first, you know, um, five or six centuries, um, probably was more a, a a promise for male ascetics, uh, for men who wanted to follow a more difficult and challenging path, who wanted to to uh, distinguish themselves from from the norm and from the commonplace, and you know, enter this competition for for the, for the higher rewards. And women were always part of it. Um, but most of the exhortations to chastity in early Christ- Christianity were intended toward men. So, so that the, 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 you know, different histories, the different gendered histories of chastity is certainly part of the story I wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. So kind of true to its name, the plot, mm-hmm. or the, the organization I found of the book itself follows a pretty neat and satisfying um, chronological path through through the history of chastity. So I was hoping we could start kind of at the beginning, mm-hmm. maybe not the beginning of chastity period. We I guess we don't really know in in pre pre-antiquity practices, mm-hmm. but at the beginning of chastity that we know about, can you talk about how it came how it came to be? Yeah, because there there is something peculiar uh about the this moment in late antiquity uh, when Christianity is forming as as a cult um, and as a new religion, and the way it did distinguish itself from you know pagan, from Greco-Roman morality and values, um, and this was certainly noticed that the Christians were doing something different. It was highly valuable in all societies, Greek, Roman, Babylonian, you know Hebrew, uh, for people to you know have a certain restraint. Uh, in their sexual lives, uh, that was, you know, there's always been a, a, a kind of valuation of modesty, of uh, being able to control your your erotic desires rather than having them control you. But the Christians added this this other, you know, this this very strange aspiration to this idea of living as if you could be free, free from sexuality, free from marriage, no longer part of the, you know, the the game the game which is to continue society, to keep the human race going, that they brought in this, this rather radical idea that maybe just bring it to an end. Uh, maybe history is waiting uh, for its for its exit, its exit clause. Um, and that saying no to, to sex is also saying no to sexual reproduction. So this is the controversial part 
of early Christianity, that kind of later praise of chastity has been rather nervous about. That, you know, if you take it seriously, if you follow it um, to its conclusion, um, a, an embrace of sexual renunciation uh, really does mean a kind of death to the species. And how can that be positively valued? Um, so that that provoked me. That was certainly, you know, a very strange idea. Um, so the, this transition from, you know, late ancient um, ideals of moderation, right? Restraint, temperance, prudence, um, you know, being rational in in your in your life um, gets um, you know rather strongly, um, you know, transgressed and indeed violated. Uh, by this, by this new message, uh, this message of of total renunciation, and what that could mean for 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 the human self. So where that's did, the first moment. Yeah, where did that transition come from? Why did that? Why was that an appealing ideal to early Christians? I mean, the the kind of bias against sex wasn't exactly unique to the Christians. Um, it existed in other. You know, ascetic communities and um, among, um, you know, say the the ancient, late ancient sage uh, was somebody who could um, determine for themselves how they how they would live, um, and often you know lead uh, you know a celibate life or a life of of say restraint in in eating and drinking, even in, in engaging in you know the kind of normal social activities, and concentrate on on spiritual improvement. So this idea of, of um, a withdrawal into the contemplative life, that was certainly pre-Christian. Um, and the Christians, you know, took that on board. They were able to absorb, um, you know, this, you know, this kind of rather beautiful idea of the purely contemplative self and then add this twist, uh, which I think did change uh, the whole history of, of the chastity plot. Yeah. Mm. Um, so the it, it's it's not per se... Um, part of the original teaching of Jesus. I mean, Jesus was a bachelor, and that was certainly, you know, special to his his calling and to those who who joined him. That they left their homes, they you know, um, um, escaped from their families to follow this this strange, otherworldly, um, you know, ideal. Um, and then it's as if they they could just suspend their attachment uh, to the family, to physicality, uh, to to life continuing as it was. So perhaps it was a very, you know, apocalyptic message um, that the world as it as it existed um, was kind of doomed to end. That there would be this breaking in of, you know, of eternity into time, uh, and that the you know time would not necessarily last. Um, so I think the the turn against uh, sexuality was, you know, can't be looked at apart from the turn against marriage and the family. Um, and I think early Christians, you know, stood out as strange and as radical. Um, because they, you know, they they seem to want to emancipate themselves from social continuation, you know, to to live in the light of of a, of a new world, a new dispensation, a new future. So, was sexuality central to Christian dogma at its inception, or was that something that early Christians kind of adopted in order to differentiate themselves from the the Romans that were living so close? That they were living so yeah, close. living amongst. Uh, I don't think it was, you know, a, a dogma at all. I think it was um, part of these unusual practices of living in in brotherhoods and then sometimes uh, living in sisterhood brotherhoods as if uh, sexual difference didn't obtain. 
um, as if you could go go beyond gender, and that was a pretty um, radical expectation. Um, so a few, you know, model um, careers of of the monk, of the inhabitant of the desert, of those who went off to live either in tiny communities or to live in caves or just to um, to, to to wander, to lead a rather nomadic life uh, without settling down back into social communities, and that couldn't last. I mean, that was you know, an extreme um, but rather temporary uh, moment in at least the, the life of the majority of Christians and remained as, as a choice for the clergy, for those who were the elite, you know, the, the exclusive, unusual people. But ordinary Christians, you know, were going to go on marrying. You know, they were going to be like ordinary Greeks and Romans. And so for them, the this, you know, this new teaching uh, about the dispensability of sexuality had to be tempered. It, it, you know, it had to be changed. So a lot of Christian doctrine, you know, over the, the you know, long period in which uh, virginity was certainly considered, you know, the highest vocation, you know, had to mediate um, between these, these two poles, you know, towards the family, towards reproduction, um, towards perhaps giving a place to marriage, even ultimately making marriage a sacrament. Um, and this other you know, otherworldly, uncanny ideal um, that you could, you know, jump out of out of your skin, out of your reality, into some other place, and that was the place of of the, you know, the 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 chaste, the the kind of making a martyr of your own body, and what I call the eunuch, um, you know, including all the negative implications of the eunuch, and the uh, Greeks and Romans and the Jews at the time would have been horrified by this idea to, mm -hmm. to be a eunuch. Was definitely to be very low on the on the you know in in the in the social ladder. Uh, so to make that valuable um, was provocative. Yeah. You said that the early Christian early Christian chastity was maybe even more associated with with masculinity than it was with femininity. Mm -hmm. Were there any? Is the eunuch is the term of the idea of eunuch? Is that a gendered term? Mm. It certainly sounds it, doesn't it? Uh, so that, you know, in, in making that kind of my term for the, the more ambitious, extreme uh, form of chastity, you know, I'm, I'm consciously, you know, playing against um, our expectations of, of gender difference. You know, what kind of body does the eunuch have? It doesn't seem to be, you know, an attractive option uh, for women. Um, some, some of the, you know, more extreme dissident groups uh, around late Judaism, um, around early Christianity, um, uh, were, were suspected of, of practicing castration um, and of doing something, you know, quite horrible to conventional ideas of, of, of gender identity. Um, so the the role for women in that uh, would be, I suppose, to to um, you know forgo maternity. Uh, to to also embrace the idea that they were that their you know significance was not as objects of you know uh, sexual attention, um, not as intending to be um, you know perfect wives and mothers, uh, but as understood and respected for the for their own sake. Uh, so then to become a eunuch is almost like a third sex, you know, someplace uh, in between and outside of of conventions of of gender identity, and that was embraced by women. Uh, women. Um, who were attracted to Christianity and kind of saw the point of this, you know, found it a reason to like, you know, tear up their marriage contracts, um, to, to break out of engagements that had been imposed on them by their families, 
um, to live, say, with other women, even, you know, most radically to follow around, you know, sort of male spiritual leaders uh, to form their own communities and own separate ways of living. Um, so this was certainly um, taken up by women um, very quickly. Um, and so the, the church had to find a place for this. And, and it was troubling. You know, there was the idea that women who, who were allowed this exemption from the normal, um, you know, destiny of women uh, were, were um, claiming to be equals and, and were, um, were challenging. We're challenging even um, their, their teachers uh, and their spiritual um, advisors uh, in that they could live uh, as if they were men and as if they were men who had a special exemption from society. So the, the 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 virgin probably is a term that for quite a while didn't have, you know, a, a you know a strict gender um, connotation. Um, men were called virgins. You know, the the, the forty thousand men, the forty thousand virgins who would you know um, inaugurate the new and final you know age, like like the age when Revelation was really actualized, um, were probably supposed to be men. Um, but then groups of virgins uh, were also idealized in, in, in that way. And, and uh, families who were disgruntled um, that their daughters, you know, or sisters or wives were, you know, uh, breaking out, um, were told that this is something to be proud of rather than, than you know, going to complain. And there are plenty of court cases um, where, where Christian leaders um, had to, you know, face uh, judges who said, you know, you have, you have, um, you know, you owe something back to these families. You have stolen these women from them. So that was a very interesting uh, time in early Christianity, when when the the battle between the Christian life and the family, um, between this kind of otherworldly and and you know, it's almost end of history expectation, was definitely at war with society. The idea of virgin as um, something that was kind of androgynous, more of a singular, even more of a, a intense concept created mm -hmm. from the popular imagination and it became something that was more gendered mm -hmm. i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals factor meals are ready to eat in heat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed they're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Oh, how did that shift? And I think you talk about that as the shift from the eunuch plot to the maiden plot. What was that shift? Yeah, no, that, that, that's a very interesting question. And, and I can see how it also picks up, um, you know, some of the um, kind of more utopian uh, expectations we might have today of the, the non-binary position as, as a kind of antisocial and more self-determined uh, way of life and, you know, similarly challenging to conventional ideas of gender. 
but there was always compromise. I mean, you, you don't, you don't have innovation. You don't have provocation without, you know, kickback, um, without a backlash and the, you know, the prevalence of, you know, other models of, of especially female, um, sexual virtue were there to, to kind of serve as means to this new compromise or means to the, you know, the compromise that probably did, did when, went out, um, the, um, one of the things that I suppose didn't figure very much in the Christian struggle over this extreme concept of, you know, androgynous or non, non-binary virginity, um, was the, you know, that part of Greek mythology and part possibly other, other, you know, religious traditions, um, which did allow a place for those who followed, say in Greece, um, the cult of Diana, the cult of Artemis, um, in the original, who's a figure for the wild. I mean, Artemis lives in the woods. You know, she got an exemption, you know, from, from you know, her father Zeus, not to marry, to live as a virgin, to, to allow no man access to her and to her followers. Um, and that very strong, very kind of untamed notion of the maiden who remains a maiden, and she was called a maiden, um, you know, then kind of got a, a, a sort of transformation in, in, in Christian practice to being, you know, the, the exemplary um, woman um, who is sort of, you know, not as subject to libidinous desire as men and therefore can be almost a wedge within her own society representing a, a different kind of purity. Because I think in, in before Christianity, it was certainly women who were considered you know, the more violently erotic, you know, the, the least in control of, of, of their sexual desires, the, the, the seducers, um, you know, men were more rational. So if they thought, well, you know, let's not go overboard, this was possible for them. But it was, you know, quite unusual to imagine that women had an independence of that type and had, you know, a kind of intellectual power and spiritual ambition of that type. So I think it did have to uh, be controlled. And this other ideal of, of the maiden as modest, as virtuous, um, as, as self-controlled, um, you know, came in there to, to, to fill the gap and then acquired its own series of romances and idealizations and, you know, beautiful pictures. I mean, you, you need a pretty picture if you're going to convince people to, you know, behave morally, you know, whatever you mean by that. It's interesting that that idea of chastity was kind of responsible for shifting an understanding of women's sexuality from being something that was uncontrollable mm. in, in, in ancient Greek time period into something that it kind of naturalized the idea that women are more like demure and yeah. um, don't have sexual appetites. Yeah. You know, now, now how you convince people of that? It's, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, it both, you know, led to this idea, especially in the 19th century, a kind of European ideal and, and perhaps in many other places, that it was easier for women to exercise restraint, um, and therefore their modesty uh, was valuable, and they would be they would be the leaders in any campaign of, of reform, rehabilitation, a protection of the family, protection of children, um, you know, fight against uh, sexual crimes, against promiscuity, against commercial sex. So women get, you know, almost um, solicited into into representing this and representing uh, a kind of you know, social unease uh, with unbridled eros. You know, a, a kind of um, as if as if the libido was weaker in them. Um, and 
you know, this is what I think we really have inherited um, this assumption that you know male desire, um, you know, is is just naturally more intense, um, you know, un, un, untrammeled, um, uh, indiscriminate. Uh, but women bring this kind of order and restraint to it. So that was a you know a kind of a a positive you know if you like narrative uh, that women within Christian culture um, were were given as their model as their way to become exemplary as their as their way to be special distinct and beautiful and then they were given you know um, images probably from a different tradition which I talk about in the book um, the pastoral tradition uh, that women are you know sweeter more gentle uh, more removed from the cut and thrust of you know, both commercial life and, and um, you know, uh, military life. Uh, and they can be this this retreat. They can be this kind of idyllic place uh, where men go to relax um, and get away from, you know, from, from the force and competition and, you know, rivalry of regular life. Um, so, the, so the virgin there becomes something, you know, both magical for her very sweetness and her childlikeness. Um, so this, this other idealization of, um, the virgin as kind of the survival of the child um, has played a, a, a pretty strong part um, in this culture of valuing chastity. Within that pastoral aesthetic, is the goal of virginity still spiritual exaltation? Mm. Or is it more secular? Is it more about marriage and, and being being a valuable um like a desirable object for marriage. Yeah. yeah, that that's I suppose is is the the lament of my book. <laughs> In a way, if it, if it if it has a regret, it's the decline of the sacred uh, ambitious aspect of of chastity uh in favor of this, you know, more accommodating um more passive um association of chastity uh with modesty um with a kind of unknowing innocence um, that that could be um, you know could be ideal femininity um, that that the, the woman um, never you know never grew up to the same extent and that um, would never have been part of the original Christian message um, that that I think you can if you're going to blame somebody you know you can't blame Saint Augustine and Saint Paul it, it's a secular ideal um, and if you like an, an ancient myth how has that ideal been reinforced throughout literature, in medieval literature yeah. or modern yeah. literature? I mean, you get those these these you know chivalric romances, all these stories about knights uh, whose purpose in life is to go save virgins, and and virgins somehow have gotten lost. You know, they're wandering around in the woods, uh, or they're you know uh, you know potential victims of of predators and and you know brutal types or indeed of monsters and, you know, non-human aggressors. Um, and knightly virtue is to, you know, both respecting the purity of virginity, but having this great satisfaction of being able to save uh, these innocent childlike women um, and to protect them from perhaps their own sexuality as well as anything else. So I think the medieval um, literature um, kind of loves this notion of the, the, the magical you know, the virgin who, who's the only person who can catch the unicorn. Uh, the virgin is the person who can walk through, you know, this, um, you know, enchanted, uh, diabolical world um, and remain intact, you know, kind of remain just exactly what she is and nothing else. So there's a kind of integrity there, which is the, the positive side of that and goes along also with the, 
um, the way, um, you know, medieval, you know, romantic mythology um, tried to turn the sublimation of, of erotic love into a, a virtue for men as well. Uh, that if you desire, if your beloved is somebody you can never have, sort of in some ways remains this, you know, untouchable virgin, uh, then you can become stronger. You know, you can prove yourself in both, you know, having the adoration, having the worship, having the passion, um, but saying no to it, you know, learning a kind of renunciation through erotic attachment. Um, so the woman remains desirable, you know, beautiful, perfect. You know, we, we don't, we, you know, we, we, we maintain the objectification of, of the female um, body and female sexuality, but it, but it turns out to be a compliment to the men um, who can look on this and yet say no to themselves, say no to their desire. Um, so that kind of, you know, almost a secular sort of asceticism uh, becomes part of a literary tradition. Do you feel like that further, that serves to even further abstract women's sexuality? Because it's not something that, it becomes something that's not even, um, it doesn't even have a any solidity to it. Like, it's not like it's something that women are either denying to their suitors or, um, like overwhelming them with it's something that is never even going to come about the the male the chivalrous males never get to come in contact with the with the with the females and the more elusive or aloof or unattainable a female is in these stories the more valuable she is yeah no that i think that that's um left a a, a quite uh disturbing legacy i mean if you like the double standard or you know the virgin whore uh, correlation that that we've suffered with a lot is is part of it, and you put that very well. I think it's 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 an abstraction, um, it's an ideal of disembodiment at the same time that this is you know kind of highly endowed with with, with sexual um, you know allure, right? So that the the allure is that which can't be touched, the allure which is that that which is unattainable. But that is no action on the part of the woman. I mean, the woman is just to remain in in her tower. Or you know, surrounded by you know, like Sleeping Beauty, you know, surrounded by these these um, you know thorny bushes, um, and that the the almost the the ideal moment is when the, the the desiring male is kept away from this possible consummation. Um, that there's always something disappointing, um, you know, a letdown, you know, a kind of <laughs> return to normalcy about consummation. You know, then where is the ideal woman after that? You know, so you, so you want to put it off as long as possible. And you want you you want to be you know it's like then then the kind of male erotic plot or the kind of traditional erotic plot you know is this step by step um, you know refusal that perhaps at the end there will be you know a a, um, a condescension you know an assent a consent um, but that you want to prolong um, you know the seductiveness of of that um, so that women are valued even if they're not quite believed if they go on saying no and that's a problem <laughs> and that's a problem. Um, that I'm trying to look at now. I'm, I'm turning from chastity to doing some work on on rape, um, and particularly on unconscious rape, to find out why, yeah, why the the uh, woman's power to say no is both idolized and indeed fetishized, and yet never uh, never taken seriously, never totally believed. That's fascinating. Never thought about it like that. Um, okay, so I see that we are actually running out of time. So I have one more question, which is that um, 
And this is something you touched on in the introduction to your book, actually, which is that there's a modern distaste for making any moral judgments about the sexual practices of women. Um, you didn't exactly put it like that, and I don't. I just I don't know if that's exactly what you mean, but that's in my experience that that is true. Um, and we never want to say that there's one way of being sexual that's better than another in modern feminist discourse. Yes. Yes. That's obviously liberating and allows for more plural, plurality of experience, which is a which is a really good thing. But it also might leave us without any guidance and without any alternative structure. And so I could see how sexual practices without any um, imposing structure on them yeah. might fall into the patriarchal structure that is already dominant. Mm -hmm. That's already dominant. Should there be more intervention into the erotic lives of citizens? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, so this gets to a whole mess about the, the, the private and the public, um, which was something that, you know, to give them credit, I, I think early Christians, you know, managed their own solution to it. I do think there's a problem about the lack of, of sexual ethics um, today. And so, you know, maybe, you know, the book is you know, only starts to be an intervention um, in that and in, in reminding us that there have been other ways of, of conceiving um, sexual sexual ethics, even though they had, I, I suspect, um, their own kind of, you know, innate decline and, you know, innate um, um, destiny to become ambivalent, paradoxical, impossible. But we haven't come up with anything better. We, we, we still have this awkwardness, uncertainty within feminism, um, can you be just sex positive? Is it all great? Does everybody have a right to sex? And then where does that lead to you? Certainly, where does it lead to you in, in questions about, you know, sexual harassment, you know, assault, objectification of women, um, you know, even that kind of you know, vulgarization of, of the conversation about sex? Because we are, you know, um, we are kind of, you know, anxious um, and kind of queasy about the very idea of, of trying to think morality and sex in, 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 the, same, in the same moment. Um, and feminism, you know, first it thought it had an answer. Yes, you know, we get rid of sexual repression and then we're going to be equal. And, but there is also another trend in, in, you know, some of the early feminists uh, who saw marriage as the real problem and saw almost as uh, women's life with men as the beginning of corruption and did try to separate themselves out. And we have, you know, have separatist feminism. We have, you know, an idealization of of, of women, women love as perhaps the alternative um, to this to this mess. Um, but we haven't thought of, you know, what's a sexual ethic for for adults? <laughs> not, you know, not about children. You know, not about predators. Not about, you know, the worst vices we can imagine. But for those of us who just stumble along, you know, kind of unclear about what 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 you know could and should be. Um, a decent way to behave sexually. And it's it's not that easily solved. Totally. Um, well, thank you so much. This is so interesting. Um, is there anything quickly? I see you have a little more time. Anything before we go that we should look out for <laughs> yeah. in, in, in the present? I don't predict um, a revival of, of sexual chastity or any kind of chastity. Um, I, you know, I'd, it would be interesting if in our, you know, in our discussions about, you know, a world beyond gender and a world beyond binary gender, uh, if some of these, um, you know, more ancient uh, traditions and images uh, return, I, I think, 
you know, the, the, the cult of Artemis has a certain appeal. I mean, this, this wild and, um, you know, a kind of very destructive uh, goddess, you know, because virginity can also be very violent. Um, that has a sort of force that might be used, you know, against the, you know, the condescension um, to sexual virtue as something only for those who are afraid of sex, who are weak, who are inhibited. There, there, are, there are other ways to uh, imagine, you know, an independence from, you know, from the kind of imperative of sex. Uh, and I think that 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 may return. Um, I don't think we're going to um, we're not going to get away from a different responsibility for feminism, uh, which is to to fight to defend um, you know women's control over their own sexuality. I don't think chastity um, is is going you know is 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 the right uh, weapon yeah for that war. I don't know that I have a better one, um, but one kind of, one kind of has to adapt um, to each uh, new struggle. But but I do I do look forward to, you know one one other thing is perhaps um, you know getting rid of um, this um, sort of blanket condemnation of of the Christian tradition as you know the villain um, in the history of, of of feminism and the, vi the villain in, in the history of sexuality. Uh, I think I think Foucault has helped a bit to make us see that differently, especially like in the the last couple of volumes of his History of Sexuality. Um, and also the Greco-Roman uh, notions of of temperance, of self-ownership, um, of um, a kind of more contemplative attitude toward sexuality, where sexuality is not just considered something, um, you know, wild or bestial, um, but something that, you know, is part of life, but, but you know, not the be-all and end-all. Um, so, so if I had to you know, give, if I had to look positively um, at the next step um, for you know, feminist critics um, and scholars um, and uh, activists. Uh, it might also include, um, you know, rethinking our, our our cultural past in the history of sexuality. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you. Very nice to talk to you. 